Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, Jake Gunderson. And for this episode, we're also joined by another of our regular panellists, Mr. Animation himself, Marin Todorov. Hey, what's up, everybody? Just in case you've missed the last couple of episodes, we have a brand new format for this season. Two speakers, two topics, 20 minutes each. And with that, let's dive straight in. Now, Marin, it's tradition, although a very short one, that we let our guest panellists speak first. And I understand you're going to be talking about our first non-technical topic of the season, which has definitely got me and Jake intrigued. So your 20 minutes starts now. Long story short, this this year I've been to a number of events. I've been, I think, about uh, probably 12, 14 events like Coco Heads, meetups and, and conferences and so forth. And code, code talks are fantastic. But as I, I was, as I was meeting more people and I was watching th- through more talks, I noticed that I got very, very interested in uh, non-technical talks because actually I was conferences and actually uh, all kind of technical conferences have a lot of non-technical talks as well. This is not the case so much for Cocoa Head meetups because Cocoa Head meetups and, and you know like Swift meetups are mostly about the code, but conferences is where people come and, and somehow like there is a balance as well between technical and non-technical and that's very interesting. So, so I want to. I I think that I I, I learned I learned um, things in, in in three different areas, and I want to talk about those. So, so first of all, I watched a few non-technical talks about how to improve myself and my code. And this is very. I, I don't want to make this talk esoteric in any in any sense. <laughs> this is not about you know becoming one with nature or reaching <laughs> God or anything like that. All of us know about the zone, right? So the zone is where you sit down and code and code and code and you like code in 20 hours straight and then there it is, it's done. Because you were in the zone, like you guys know that, right? You've, you've experienced it. A yes would be nice, a no would be also appreciated. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally. Yeah, I wish I could experience it more often, but definitely. Yeah. I was going to say, not as often as I'd like. Yeah. Exactly, precisely my point. So the zone is not something that works every time. The zone is great when you are prototyping or where you're having the idea at first and so forth. But most of your time is actually spent on polishing, debugging and things like that. And the zone doesn't really work for them. I watched in a fantastic um, talk by Miguel Ping on, on a Portuguese conference called Colbits. And he was talking about taking up meditation. And I, at first I was really not believing that this is something that I can relate to. <laughs> But it turned out that uh, when I gave activities like meditation, so uh, I gave a few things a try, and it turned out it really improved my code, and I actually feel much better. So I tried meditation, cooking, and running. And I'm still sticking with cooking and running. (laughs) (laughs) But it's fantastic. So um, I started with running um, in um, just a few months ago, Actually, in my lunch breaks, I was I was in Barcelona teaching at a boot camp, and so I did so I did the following: I I, I cut up um, the uh, the day at like about twelve, send the students to eat, then I will just run to the gym, run half an hour there, have a sauna, have a shower, and then go back. 
And I noticed, and I, and I did it just for fun, just to try it out. And I noticed that after that, I was really more focused and more relaxed and actually happier because I got a sauna, I had a shower in the middle of the day to just to refresh myself. And I had to put away all, all the code stuff that I was thinking about away for half an hour or one hour actually with the, all the activities around. But, and so after one hour of total detachment from, from what I was focusing really strong on actually made me being able to focus better on it um, afterwards. And, and same with cooking. It's really, you, if, you, if you take one hour at lunch to uh, sit down, look up a recipe, maybe go down to the grocery store and then cook quickly and then uh, you know, eat what you've cooked, it's really something that takes you away from the keyboard. You totally detach from where is my problem <laughs> right now that you're really focused on. And then when you came back, you're happy, your belly is full, and then you're like, okay, let me start from the beginning look through all things one by one, and then you kind of like find where the problem was. So this is fantastic. This is, this is one way to improve yourself. I was really surprised. I never ran before. I never cooked before. And I never meditated before, and I'm still not meditating. But that's another story. <laughs> well, I'm a little curious about, about the meditation part of it, because actually that's something I just started doing, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm just barely getting into it. And it's hard to, it's hard to notice if it's helping or not yet. But what, what was your experience with the meditation? Obviously, it wasn't profound or you'd be still doing it, but, but what, was, what did it look like for you? Well, well it, was, it was nice and I felt relaxed, but um, you know, my blood circulation is not that good. So uh, it was not actually very good for me uh, to do it. I had like, actual physical problems. Uh, but that's that a, that's a, yeah, that's a, how, how is it working out so far for you if, 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 if you have any opinion so far? It, it does seem to help. Like say, I've just, I've just been doing, I do it, probably every other day and maybe for like five to 10 minutes right now. So I plan on increasing that length, but when I'm done, I definitely feel more focused. So I, the reason I started doing it is because I think I might have uh, ADHD. I read a book uh, called driven to distraction. And just lately in my life, I noticed I'm having a harder time sitting down and getting focused and pushing past that. I don't know if you guys experience this, but sometimes when I sit down to go to, to work, I have this sense of like, really, really not wanting to work on a piece of code that I need to solve. (laughs) And it's like to the point where I can't, I can't force myself to overcome that. Meditation was one of the things I thought I need to start doing something to try and, and I mean, I have kids and life just has been more hectic lately. So I was like, I need some more, I need some strategies to help me learn how to control when I can focus and when I can't. And so, so a meditation, it seems to be helping so far, but like I said, I just barely got started. It's hard to say. So, so are you, planning on only trying meditation or are you willing to look into other areas because i've heard from quite a few people i mean i'm quite lazy myself uh, I, I would rather sit at my desk and go for a run if i'm honest um, I, I, as much as it should be the other way around um, but i have heard from quite a few people that do exercise regularly and people that exercise during the day like my own is that it sort of invigorates you and it gets your blood pumping and you know, you, you come back and you feel, like Mary said, you, you know, you feel refreshed and raring to go and re-motivated and reinvigorated. I can understand that because as much as what I've just said, I have done exercise in the past. I know what sort of effect that has on you, but I've never meditated. So I don't know when you come out of a meditation session, how how you feel then compares to how you feel after going for, say, a 30-minute run or, you know, going on the rowing machine for 30 minutes or you know, lifting weights for 30 minutes. I'm not sure how the two relate. 
Yeah, I mean, I do exercise. I exercise six days a week. You wouldn't know it to look at me because I don't eat very well. But I work out about 50 minutes every day. And, and it does help. Like, I usually do it in the middle of the day when I've kind of hit a wall. So, like, once I start to feel like, ah, I'm sick of what I'm doing, I'll go to the gym. When I come back, usually I do feel more focused and just better about work. Meditation's a little different. It, I don't have – I mean, the exercise for me it invigorates me and it kind of, like – it kind of turns up that sense of like my body's just kind of like turned on about like 150%. Like everything's just clearer and I just feel better. Uh, meditation is more like it helps quiet the kind of the noise in my head. So like if I sit down and I'm like, I just can't focus and I, I have this like dri- drive to check YouTube or just do whatever else besides the thing I'm supposed to be doing. I find that if, if I meditate for a few minutes, that helps kind of quiet that that other those other kind of competing energies in my head i don't know if that makes sense no definitely makes sense and it sounds like you can almost use the two together to, to shape you into some ultimate jake that can you know that's get, that's get the into hope. the zone and not be distracted <laughs> yeah yeah i just wanted to, uh, to add that this exactly how i feel about combining cooking and running because um cooking is something that you you know almost float around in in in, in the room and you just you know, like you have to cut all the things, wash them, put them in. It's something physical you do with your hands. Um, and it's very, very calming. It's fantastically calming to just, uh, you know, it, there's, there's very little stress about it. You just, you just do it. You just cut things. And then in the end, you have, a, you have a whole meal and it feels very, very rewarding and it calms you down. So this is, this is you know, a very non-technical way to improve yourself. And funny, ironically, you know, also improves your code and also improves your, your, yourself. However... Um, after I saw a few talks on this, on personal improvement, I noticed that there were more talks that, that uh, spoke about not really only focusing on yourself, but extending, your, extending the circle where you, where you seek to, to improve things. And, and three things that I wanted to mention about improving your interaction with, with your immediate colleagues, with your immediate customers and so forth. Talk that I want to highlight in here is, is by Ash Furrow. It's called Loosely Held Strong Convictions. It went online recently. And he was talking, besides many other things, he was also saying that you always need to consider the point of view and the context that every decision is being made, made in. When you see a line of bad code in your teammates commit from six months ago, you know, this has been like, at the moment, this, this, this line felt right for somebody. And they had a reason to write it. So this person is not garbage. They, they, it just made sense at the time. Maybe a new API has been introduced since then that makes this decision obsolete. Or maybe you don't know something that, that this person knew six months ago and that's why they did this. So by trying to walk in the shoes of others in your immediate environment, you can improve extremely your interactions within your team. And you can also improve the interactions with your users. Um, this is a this is a talk that I saw from Hermes Peak at NS Spain this year. It was a fantastic talk, and it's called Empathy Coding. What he did was to turn off the projector, and he did have no slides, just to try to show us how it is for blind users. You know how they experience you know using apps. They, you just don't see anything. You have to listen to things, and I think people were way more attentive to this talk than others that had slides. But besides this. I think every, everyone felt that they're, they're, they had, they're more empathetic towards, towards users that need really good accessibility in products. 
just imagine that, you know, the very simple thing of, I don't know, validation of your input before sending it to the server. If you are not too lazy to do this, to, 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 to fit this into your daily schedule, if you, if you make the extra effort to make a little something that gets you out of your way but helps your users, you can just change the day of, of all of your users. Just give them a little, little, you know, little something to look for uh, or so in your, in, your, in your product. So empathy is a fantastic thing to consider. And uh, if you wanna, wanna see how, how clearly and how greatly he showed, what does that mean? Um, just watch the talk. Finally, well, we can be just, just, just better with, with with everyone. You know, we can be, we can we can meet all kind of people from all kind of different cultures and different uh, beliefs and different programming backgrounds, and still be fantastic to them if only we would open, open our minds to them. Uh, the talk was called hipster-oriented programming, <laughs> and <laughs> and. Uh, it's, it's by uh, Jens Ravens from Berlin, from the Berlin Swift group, actually. Uh, he's organized the Swift meetup in Berlin. And, and he was talking about all these oriented programmings that are coming up uh, at any point. And all the people that are arguing endlessly on the internet, as always, about something. And right now about all these oriented programming things. And, and, and if you would watch his talk, you would see that actually it is not that important. And, and once you know it, he was telling me, I have a problem just before his talk. And his problem was he's writing code too fast <laughs> because he decided to not stick to imperative programming and not stick to functional programming and not stick to reactive programming, but just use whichever fits the current task at hand. So he would just use the best from all. Well, he's turning apps from from prototypes to working apps in no time so he was and he's a he's a contractor basically so this <laughs> turns out to be a problem right now <laughs> you guys work on a team you know how it is right yeah i mean i really like the idea of stepping into someone else's shoes i, I in the past have been quite hot-headed to respond to things that i don't like i mean we all work on a team we all work on a huge team uh when it comes to raywendlick.com you know there's i think there's almost 100 members maybe even more now um and you know when you're up against deadlines and you're looking at other people's work and you're thinking you know you might understand something a little better than they understand but you need to take a step back and and take all that into account before replying to that person or giving that person some feedback or you know any any kind of that thing is is and I also learned this when I used to work for a big telecoms company as well, managed a team there, and it was a very similar thing. You would always, pretty much every day, come across something that you disagreed with that somebody else had done. And it was so easy for your initial response to put that person down or, you know, like, criticise when really there was probably a, you know, a very genuine reason why that person made that decision. And, you know, so that really resonates with me. The meditation, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I felt like I'm doing things to improve myself. I felt like I'm doing things to improve my communication with my team and with my immediate surroundings. I also was very lucky to attend a few talks that were talking about the ways to improve the world. So not only yourself, not only your team, but the whole world. Imagine that. I saw the opening keynote at Go to Copenhagen this year from Dr. Anita Sangupta from NASA. She, she was on the team that designed 
the shoot for the Mars probe, the latest Mars probe. These guys have the following problem. You know, the, the time radio takes to, to, to go from Mars to Earth and back is more than the time they need to land the probe on Mars. So they can never talk to the probe during landing. So they had to write a software that will land this flying machine on a, diff on a planet that nobody has ever been to and, and had to work perfectly uh, in conditions that you can never predict. So this is some kind of pressure, right? So, so, <laughs> so, so watching this talk really put my problems in perspective. Should I you know, uh, have, a pr have a property for this and that state to my view controller or should I just pass the value to a function? That really doesn't matter compared to <laughs> landing a Mars probe on a different planet with no input on how things are happening or what's gonna happen. So, and also a, a, different, a different talk by Mike Lee that was on 360 iDev. He was talking about, you know, big things, big things, very, very, very big things. For example, programming self-driving cars. He was talking about, you know, how can we build a machine that would help us produce more oxygen on the planet because we are kind of like getting out of it by producing more and more, you know, uh, basically CO2 and, and so forth um, and it, it was it was a fantastic talk I really I really recommend it you could have a look but just one of the problems that, that I heard about 360 IDF and really made me thinking was about the self-driving car and the self-driving car is something that you know some of us one of us will have to sit down someday soon and write a software to tell the car what to do in a problematic situation and what if the situation is turn left and kill somebody on a motorbike to prevent a, 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 an accident on the right with, with a school bus. So, so the, the car, and, and there is no other option in this situation. In this extreme situation, somebody will have to sit down and program the software to take the decision in this, in this moment. Um, so, you know, you can imagine the impact your code will do to the, to the world. So, you know, you can, you can think, you, can, you should put more the decisions you make on daily basis more in perspective. Maybe right now you don't program the, the software for the self-driving car. Maybe now you're just pushing a new view controller and, and the, the choices between adding a property or, you know, injecting the value to, 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 through a function. Um, but that made me think that I always need to take the best decision. I, I shouldn't be lazy about making the right decisions because maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow I'll have to make a decision that really really makes a difference. And, and, and to end up on a, on, a, on a lighter, more positive note, the last talk I want to highlight is by Orta Thorax. He was on Fragment Mark in Italy. Um, and he, talk, he spoke about open sourcing your company code by default. So by default, put all your code on GitHub. And if there is anything that is the essence of your business or if there's a special algorithm that makes your product really special, then take this off uh, GitHub and put it in your private repo or so, or so. And so at first it would sound ludicrous, but just to explain it in one sentence, imagine the code you put on GitHub. You put special attention to this, right? Because all the trolls are gonna come by and gonna, gonna add an opinion on this code. So you do your best. And imagine the code you code by yourself in a dark corner in your office with your monitor turned to the wall. This is the worst code that you don't put any attention to. And now imagine how, how much the, a company would benefit if all the source code is 
public by default. Everyone will do their best. They will not try to cut corners. This is a very interesting thing to think. So it really made me thinking. Orthotherox did a, a brilliant talk. Uh, if you don't see anything else from all the talks that I, that, I, that I talk about today, this is what you really need to see. The Android Dev Summit has been going on this past week. So I, I follow a lot of people that are develop, uh, Android developers on Twitter. And one of the things that was repeatedly retweeted was a comment that came out from one of the talks about not worrying about writing beautiful code and don't worry if your code doesn't look great because your end users don't see your code. Your pre-built binaries that are installed on their devices, that's all they care about. They don't care what the code looks like underneath. And as long as the experience doesn't suffer, you shouldn't let that drive how you write your code, which I thought was an interesting take and is probably the exact opposite of what Auto was promoting in that talk by the sounds of it. Yeah, that, that is true. That is true. Um, Order was promoting the idea that public code is best code. I, I think I would rather happily drive the car that I had a look at the code of. <laughs> <laughs> Smarin, time is up. Uh, but I really appreciate all the stuff that you brought to our attention. I can tell that you have been inspired this year by a number of things that you've attended and um, I'm definitely going to be looking into some of those links. Before we move on to talking to Mick about OS X, we want to take a minute to thank the folks at Harvest. You're a developer working solo or on a team. You thought you were wrapping up a project until the client asks for a new feature at the last minute. Do you know how much time you're spending on every feature, tweak, or bug fix? Harvest is a time tracking tool built for understanding where your time is going and for developers, it takes the pain out of time tracking. You can start a timer right from the issues in Jira or GitHub without searching for your timesheet. Not only will you understand how much time you're spending on client work, you'll be able to turn your billable hours into an invoice from Harvest in minutes. Harvest integrates with PayPal and Stripe to make it easy to get paid. There's built-in reporting in Harvest that lets you see how long previous projects took, and you can leverage this information to make better estimates in the future. Create a free 30-day trial at getharvest.com. After your trial, enter code RAY, that's R-A-Y, to save 50% off your first month. Thanks again to Harvest for sponsoring this episode of the RayWenderlich.com podcast. Okay, Mick, we're going to talk a little bit about OS X, I believe. So I'm turning the time over to you. We are in the middle of our OS X feast. We've got lots of tutorials going out on the site to get anybody that has never dabbled with OS X development into up to speed and raring to go motivated to do that uh so i thought it might be good to spend 10 15 20 minutes talking about my experiences with os 10 development i spent the best part of the summer this year working on our in-house uh, book publishing tool which is an os 10 app and that is the first time i've developed for os 10 like in any serious capacity what i thought might be good to do is just to open the floor to questions because I'm obviously an iOS developer by trade and I've just spent a serious amount of time building a, an OS 10 app. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, I had a similar experience. I'm I'm an iOS developer first, but I, I had a job uh, working for a company that did OS 10 apps for, and I worked for them for about two years and I had a mentor at that job that was a long, you know, 10 years OS 10 Cocoa developer. So it's interesting to see, for me, it's been interesting to watch kind of the different approaches from 
the the OS 10 people versus the iOS people. Like one example, and you mentioned this earlier to me, uh, is the responder chain. The responder chain exists on both platforms, but it's kind, you can kind of ignore it on iOS, but on OS 10, it's much more important. Do you want to kind of tell us a few things that you learned about the responder chain? Yeah, so to give you a very specific example, so the first time I kind of tripped over the responder chain was the architecture on OS 10 apps. It's still MVC, but it's slightly different because you have to manage windows. You still have views and view controllers in the same way that you do on iOS, but your view controllers and your views are embedded in windows and you can obviously have multiple view controllers in a single window. But beyond that, you can have many windows, which is something that isn't common on iOS. And also, uh, just one specific thing about NS window is that it's not a subclass of NS view in the same way that um, UI window is a subclass of UI view. It's its own object. But I had, so your toolbar, the little toolbar at the top that has like your app name and you can have some some buttons and things on there is, um, is part of and belongs to the window not the view controller that's with, shown within that window because obviously you can swap that out. And I wanted to trigger an action from within my view controller that affected the toolbar. And there is no um, window uh, property or window controller property on a view controller. So I was kind of banging my head against the wall. I was like, how can I... One thing is embedded in the other, but it just seems no obvious way to talk to them uh, or to get them to talk to each other. And then I stumbled upon... Uh, first responder and this responder chain. And basically in OS 10, you can, everything um, that's shown on screen is part of the responder chain. And you can think of it as like a hierarchy. And what you can do is you can define a method on the first responder object within your storyboard. Uh, I'm sure you've probably all seen this because it does exist in the iOS world. It's just something we don't tend to use. And then you can connect up your actions and your outlet, well, mainly actions, to your first responder. And it will then bubble that action method up the responder chain until it finds something that implements that method. And then you can, you know, do whatever you need to do once that method's called. And that's exactly how I used it. So I defined the method on the window controller. And then that automatically appears in the first responder object for my view controller and I can connect the two up and get and that way you can get the two talking to each other. But it was something very uncommon and kind of a weird um, idea and concept to get your head around the first time you used it. But all this stuff is available, as I say, on iOS. There's a technology on OS X called bindings that is really useful that we don't have at all on iOS. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? or? Yeah, so I mean, I love bindings. Bindings allow you to connect your data source directly to your view um, by way of a controller object. But that controller object is usually a uh, an existing object that you can use with an interface builder. It's not something that you have to subclass and write yourself, although you can do that. And what it allows you to do is, say you have a text field and then on your model you have a a string property, you can bind the two together. So whenever you update your model in code, it will automatically reflect that chain, that change in the UI and vice versa. So if you change it in the UI, it will automatically update the model. And there are array controllers and there are dictionary controllers and there are object controllers. So all these are 
um, pre-made classes that Apple give you that you can just use uh, out of the box with very little setup. Um, or like I say, you can you can subclass and, and create your own. But they also allow you very quickly to, like say if you're using a array controller, you can connect that up to a table view or a collection view and very quickly um, have your views up and running and populated with your data with very little code. I mean, I think I found some tutorials online when I was starting to work with OS X, where basically, um, as long as you had some data in your model, you didn't have to do any boilerplate code or any wiring code. You could just do it all in Interface Builder and you could get your app up and running and displaying your data without writing a single line of, of glue code, if you like. So yeah, I'm very impressed by bindings. Yeah, there are there are factions of coders that don't like bindings, and usually it comes down to uh, issues with debugging. It's a little harder to, to debug because you can't put a breakpoint anywhere, it, things like that. So I love them. I when we use when I worked on OS ten, I used them all the time. I think they're so useful, so much easier. But there are people that just don't like them. I mean, there are people that don't like to use Interface Builder at all. So you <laughs> can you can understand why there are people people that wouldn't like bindings for similar reasons. So it's got a steep learning curve. You know, I'm not gonna. Um, kid anyone it's not something that you can dive straight into and understand everything that's going on mainly because there are so many things that you can configure because you can put custom data transformers in there that transform your data into model into something that's much easier for the person using it and viewing it and there's all sorts of things you can do but once you kind of get over that initial hurdle they become incredibly powerful and we do have some similar things on iOS through third party frameworks I know Reactive Coco can, can sort of do a lot of this hooking up your model and your controller to your UI. And there's a new one called the Bond Framework, which is specifically about binding UI elements to, to model objects. But yeah, big fan of bindings, big fan of the responder chain. Just today I was talking to somebody who, who, um, who was working on, on an app and using Bond and, and they're fantastically happy with it. It takes all the boilerplate from from you know refreshing your your UI from your model and things like that is just done automatically. It takes one line of code to to wire up one property in your model to your text field or to your label or to whatever, um, and it's and it's really fantastic. Uh, even if you don't do reactive programming, I think it's worth just just visiting the GitHub the GitHub README of Bond and have a look at, at what does it do, uh, because I think it does it very well. I mean, we, we could definitely put a link. Um, in the show notes for that. What I mean, the only thing I would say is if you do try out the Bond framework and you are impressed with what it does and you do like, imagine being able to do that without relying on a third-party framework and imagine being able to do that with writing very little or no code depending on what it is you're trying to do because basically that's what Cocoa Bindings gives you um, and, it, and it is impressive. One thing I, I do want to say is that, as you mentioned, Mick, Bindings is, is built on top of KVO, Key Value Observing, and you can in iOS, I mean, you, you can't do this without writing code. You have to write code. And a lot of people don't like the KVO API. And so a lot of iOS developers don't use KVO very much. But you can construct the same structures you, that you do in bindings with KVO. You just have to write the KVO code to do it. And and I noticed that um, OS ten developers, when they're working on iOS, that's often how they will do it because they, they've already kind of got the binding structure in their head. I do this myself. I already understand how bindings work. And so I, when I go to solve a problem, it makes more sense for me to use KVO than to try and use delegates or some other pattern. So, 
I think the biggest issue with KVO is that it all goes through a single method. Yeah. It I think that's, and that's, it's it's string it's stringly typed. Yeah. It goes through a single method. There are definitely uglinesses about that API, and that's that's why people say don't use it. Like you'll read posts that say don't use KVO. I disagree with that. I think KVO is a great technology, um, but there are issues. There's issues if you don't if you add an observer and then you don't remove it before you deallocate the object. You you can get different crashes and weird behaviors. You know, deal. You can deal with all that if you have good coding patterns. But yeah, like a lot of people don't like KVO, but I like it. I use it all the time. So, um, Mick, I wanted to ask you something from from your iOS developer perspective. Um, what I what I really despise about um, developing for Apple platforms is that sometimes I need to use C libraries. I really don't want to write C. I didn't become an iOS developer to write C, and I'm not going to be <laughs> an iOS developer to write C. So, so how how do you compare both platforms? Do you have to write more? Like, do you have to use more C-based frameworks in, on OS 10 than than on iOS? How how would, can you compare both uh, in terms of um, um, uh, C C functions usage? In in the app that we spent the summer building, we didn't really use any Apple C libraries other than core text which is predominantly sort of c-based um but it translates to swift very well so that that wasn't really too much of an issue the markdown parser we used is c but it came with an objective c wrapper so again you know that comes straight into swift no problem but you can do a lot of things in swift now directly with c and chris your friend chris Hydoff has a as a great video uh, that I'll put in the show notes about how to wrap a C, C functions and C libraries in Swift to make them very Swifty, which then obviously makes things much easier to work with. So if you're willing to put in a little bit of investment up front to make, you know, working with those APIs and those um, C libraries a little bit more elegant via Swift, then you're going to win in the long in the long term. But one thing I do want to say just on the um, topic of comparing platforms is I think this kind of a myth that's hung around it probably was correct a few years ago um, in that OS 10 is is just you know developing on OS 10 rather is just incredibly behind the times uh, when compared to iOS um, and so that was obviously something that was playing on my mind when we went, went into this because it was a little bit of the unknown but when you get when you start you know building up your apps and, and looking, oh, I need to use foundation. Well, that's there. Oh, I need to use um, Cortex. Well, that's there. Oh, I need to use, um, you know, all the uh, NS attributed string extensions. They're all there. Um, you know, core data. Yep, no problem. So there wasn't really anything that I came up against in terms of what's available on iOS that I needed to use on OS 10 that wasn't there. Um, so that that sort of problem very quickly dissipated and, and I was able to crack on and, and reuse all that experience from developing on iOS. And, and we also factored that into when we were building this app, just to touch on the, the technology part. And again, I think this is something that people should definitely consider if they're going to look at either porting an iOS app to OS ten or, or coming the other way from a, I, a OS ten to iOS, is most of our, because of the almost parity i mean there's still obviously issues between the two but you know i think the parity is a lot closer than than what it was um we were able to put a lot of our non user facing code if you like into a framework 
and that framework we can then use on bo across both platforms. And really, beyond that, um, all you've got is your UI. So you've got your OS 10 UI, you've got your iOS UI, and then you've got this shared framework of code because we, we were using all, all the Apple stuff. And, and that made it very, very good. And, and does mean that if I wanted to take the OS 10 app and put it on iOS, it you know, I would be able to do that in a relatively short space of time. I think when people are kind of put off by OS 10, first of all, it has come, it has gotten closer in the last four or five years to iOS than it was a while ago. Um, but it's mostly has to do with AppKit because AppKit's much older than UIKit. So there's a lot of stuff in AppKit, like every control has an NS cell subclass that you have to, you know, if you want to customize a control, you have to deal with that. You Not everything is layer-backed. Like on iOS, everything's layer-backed, so you can set a background color on a view. On uh, In OS 10, not everything is layer-backed, and so a lot of those doc background colors, they're just not there. And so you got to drop into core, core graphics to customize the look and feel of, of things on OS 10. And so I think that's a lot of times what people are put off by. But it's really, it, it has come a long way in terms of there's a lot fewer of those things, and it's not that hard to overcome those things, so... I also think that's great experience, though, because by almost forcing you to do that, it's it's allowing you to understand what's going on under the hood on iOS. You know, like to take yeah, your background color example there. It's like we take it, you know, we take it as granted that we can just do dot background color equals UI color dot color red, and everything works. <laughs> um, but like you say, you can't do that uh, on an NS view or you know NS uh, view controller or whatnot. So you need to dig down. You need to override draw rec and do that yourself. And that allows you to gain a little bit of experience that perhaps you wouldn't have got on iOS. But then if you ever came up across a similar problem on iOS, you would you would then know how to solve that. Um, so, you know, I definitely, I know I'm not going to say this just because we're in the middle of the iOS 10 feast and I want, you know, I want to pimp, you know, all the hard work <laughs> that everybody's doing. But, you know, I, I do think that more iOS developers should should look at uh, OS 10 as a, as a viable platform and embrace the fact that they're, they're already going to know sort of seven, eight, nine tenths of what they need to know to be able to get an app up and running. Um, I mean, one one thing that I did want to touch on just just about getting an app up and running, uh, one one massive positive that developing on iOS 10 has over developing on iOS is there is no simulator, which meant iteration was so much faster because not only did you have your compile time which seemed to run a lot faster anyway um but then there was no installing the app on a simulator waiting for the simulator to launch if it wasn't already launched waiting for the app to launch it was like uh, you, you click build and run and within seconds your app was up and you were using it and this meant that we could iterate so much faster on the desktop app that we were building than we would have ever been able to do on an ios equivalent and to me that that you know that pro over the course of you know, the summer that we were working on this and, and even going as far back as May, that's probably saved us. You know, if you that accumulates up over time, it's probably saved us a good few hours. Are you, like, is, is your big message, even even the code, so, so some of the code will run right away and that's great. And for the code that doesn't run right away, you're kind of like already know the concepts, you just need to lay it down uh, using different classes. Is this what you're what you're trying to transmit here? I think so. I think that's that's a very succinct and direct way of um, putting across yeah the, the underlying message of, of the last twenty minutes. Uh, so well, well done, Marin, for being able to do that. All right, we'll uh, wrap it up there. 
That was a great point, Marin. Thank you again for joining us. And if you have any feedback or comments on this episode, the new format or the series as a whole, please continue to get in touch with us at podcast at raywenderlich.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.